You know, when the original authors of the Gospels set out to write, uh, their intention was never to present the facts uh, in perfect chronological order. In other words, um, even though it genuinely leads that way, if you were to read the Gospel from beginning to end, you would see in the beginning that the authors usually begin either with the birth of Christ and the beginning of his ministry, and they work very carefully towards his death, burial, and his resurrection. However, uh, it is not correct to think that everything that we read within each of the Gospels is laid out uh, in the exact order in which it actually occurred during the time of Christ. And one of the examples of that is found in this passage this morning in Mark chapter 4. Many New Testament scholars, and it seems to be very clear that uh, this insertion here of these events and Jesus telling and preaching of the parables of the kingdom of God didn't originally actually uh, occur immediately after the events told in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Now, because he, he did that, because Mark placed it here, we've got to ask ourselves the question, why would he do it? He's doing it for a purpose, so we need to understand what he's trying to do as he's working through uh, this particular text and working through why did he lay these parables of the kingdom of God here in chapter 4. And I think the way that we understand that is through context. And so what we do is we look back in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we see what's been happening there. Let's remind ourselves just for a minute. Jesus keeps preaching something. He's preaching the inbreaking of the kingdom of God into human history. In fact, every time he turns around, he's preaching the gospel. He says to repent and believe for what the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's preaching about the kingdom of God everywhere. Now, what you would expect, since he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, since the kingdom of God has come, you're expecting then, and his original readers that would be reading the book of Mark, uh, they, when they get to chapters three and chapters, ch- ch- chapter two and chapter three, they get a little bit confused. Because they're like, okay, Jesus is constantly preaching the kingdom of God has arrived, which you would think then that there's a whole lot of people becoming citizens of God's kingdom and submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ and to God. But in chapters 2 and 3, we see pretty much the opposite of that. In fact, many of the people that you think that would be believe and be want to be a part of this kingdom really want nothing to do with it at all. In fact, we saw the scribes and the Pharisees, they're rejecting Jesus, they're opposing him at every turn, and they're even now making plans to kill him. There are a bunch of fans that love to follow Jesus, don't they? They love Jesus, but it's not really that they love Jesus. Truthfully, they just love what Jesus can do for them. And if Jesus can give them what they want and give them happiness and help them build their kingdom, then they're willing to embrace Jesus at least for a while. You know, one thing we hardly even drew our attention to was that in chapter 3, even his own family, his earthly family, uh, really didn't buy, you know, fall in hook, line, and sinker with embracing Jesus as the Messiah. Certainly his brothers did not. But what we find is in chapter 3 is that it says that they wanted to lay hands on him. In other words, they wanted to bring him home because they thought that he had gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They thought he had lost it, that he was going literally insane, that he was going crazy. The only people we really follow is really buying into this whole kingdom of God thing is this really kind of small group of misfits called his disciples, right? There's four four of them are just ordinary fishermen. They're unlearned. They're untrained. Uh, we've, got, uh, we, we've got a tax collector that loves to rip everybody off and everybody hates him. Uh, then we've got one guy who wants to kill the tax collector. It's a mess. 
But these are the guys who ultimately want to come and submit themselves to Jesus' leadership and his lordship. So what's happening as a reader, as you approach this, you begin to sit there and say, man, what Jesus is saying happening is just hard to see. We, we're not seeing this kingdom that we thought was going to happen, and we're just not seeing it play out. And so what I think Mark does is Mark realizes that there's confusion and there would be confusion in the, in the, in the reading of the original you know, readers, in the minds of the re- original readers. So what he does is he places the teachings of, God, of Christ concerning the kingdom of God right in chapter 4 because he has to explain to them what's going on. And he does this for two reasons. I believe he does it, number one, to be able to clarify something that's confusing them. And the other purpose is to encourage them as they're reading. Remember, some of these people that were reading it this time, hearing it preached, they were already believers in Jesus Christ. And as they look around and things don't seem to be going the way they ought to be going, some of them might be kind of sitting back going, hey man, what's going on? How is this all supposed to be working? Now, we are going to get to the parable today, but we had to break it up into two sections, okay? Because all the word is profitable, amen? And so we had to break it up into two places. And let me tell you how this text is usually approached, and I've done it myself. Usually we want to get right to the soils. Just tell us about the soils, right? We want to know about the soils. And then we really skip the first section, the first 12 verses, and they're just rich of truth there. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of unpack that and go through that. But before we begin to kind of work through that at the very end of the service, uh, that parable itself, just explaining it and giving you just a few truths, what I want to do is I want to, I want to answer two questions that I think we need to answer before we work through this. If we're going to understand these parables, there are two questions that we need to answer. First question is this. We need to answer the question of, uh, 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 of why did Jesus choose to preach through parables? Of all the different ways, that there's a lot of different ways of teaching, but why did he specifically choose parables? The second question I want to answer is this, is what is the kingdom of God? If we're about to study about the parables concerning the kingdom of God, then we need to answer those questions, okay? And so we're going to begin by asking or answering the first with the Lord's help. So why did Jesus teach in parables? And we see that very clearly he did. Even in this passage in John, or Mark chapter 4 and verse 1 and 2, he says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, you've got to understand that Mark was a unique type of author compared to the others. Because Mark really doesn't add a great deal of Jesus' teaching in his Gospels compared to, say, a Mark or a John. But when he does add them, he always usually includes them as parables within that. And one of the two major places, there's two major places where he gives us a great deal of Jesus' teaching. And one of those places is here in chapter 4. Now, what's, the reason that Mark does this is not because he doesn't think the words of God are important. Just for him, he thinks his actions are even more important. So there's an emphasis on what Jesus does all the way through the book. That's why he keeps using word, the word immediately. And immediately Jesus said, or immediately Jesus did this, or immediately Jesus went here. It's all about the action of Jesus. Now, it's interesting that he would use parables. Here's why. Because parables, parables themselves are kind of hard to get your arms around. They're kind of hard to understand. In some ways, they're kind of like analogies or illustrations. If you have a point, I do that sometimes here. Uh, We preach a spiritual truth, and you guys are looking at me kind of like you are now, kind of like, 
I don't, I don't understand. What, what, what is he saying? And then what happens is we go and we give the illustration about the big baboon. And then you sit there and go, oh, yeah, like the baboon. Now I get that spiritual truth, all right? Oh, the baboon illustration, right? You love that. You pour your heart out in preaching the word and people remember the baboon illustration, right? That's what they walk away with. But what happens here, it kind of works this way. It's meant to, uh, you know, those are meant to clarify and to simplify spiritual truth. Well, this is the same way, but yet it's a little bit different. It does not simplify the truth. Have you ever tried to read a parable and really figure out what in the world Jesus is saying? It doesn't always simplify it, but it does clarify it. But here's the key for some, but not for all. What we find, and here's the truth concerning a a parable. In fact, parables are unique because they both clarify the truth for some, but they hide the truth for others. Don't we see this through the word of God when you read it? When you read the word of God, this is what we find. We find all these outsiders, all these like Pharisees and scribes are listening to Jesus and they keep coming to the wrong conclusions. Well, he's saying this and he's saying that and he says that he'll tear the, par- he'll, he'll, he'll tear the temple down and raise it in three days. That's impossible. They're not getting what Jesus is saying. But those who are his disciples, they have to work through it. And even though they don't get it always, they begin to understand as they pontificate on it, as they think about it, the true significance that Jesus is ultimately teaching in the Word of God. Jesus explains this himself down in chapter 10 through, or verse 10 and through uh, 10 and 11. Now, notice what he says here. He says in verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him, uh, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. Okay, so this is, I think, what they're asking. I think they're saying, hey, Jesus, uh, listen, man, why are we doing the whole parable thing? (laughs) All right, look, you've got all these people out there, all right? They want to hear. They've showed up to hear what you're saying, and you bust out the parables. And I don't know if you know this or not, but nobody really knows what you're talking about, okay? Uh, You know, and so if you've got a large crew like that, you might want to tone it down, make it a little simpler, get rid of the parables, and begin to use, you know, some uh, fennel graphs or something like that, right? Felt more Bible characters to explain what you're doing if you really, really want to clarify it. So Jesus at this point takes an opportunity to teach him why it is that he's doing this. And in verse 11, it says, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Now, here brings up another theme of the book of Mark. Mark is constantly talking about insiders and outsiders. Those are on the inside and those that are on the outside. Here's the, here's the, here's the hook. The hook or the catch is that those who are on the inside, you would think would be the ones on the outside. And the ones on the outside, you would think that would be the ones on the inside. Just Very simply put, uh, you would think that the spiritual leaders of Israel would be on the inside loving and embracing Jesus, but they're not. They identify them as those on the outside. Those on the inside you think would be on the outside. Tax collectors, sinners, what are they doing? You think they would reject Jesus, but what are they doing throughout the book of Mark? They're loving Jesus. They're accepting Jesus. They want to be a part of this whole kingdom movement that's ultimately uh, going on. So what Jesus does is he breaks up the two, and he explains the difference between the two. The first one, he talks about the insiders, and this is what he says again. To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Two words, mark that in the phrase, two words, given and secret. Given and the word secret. Now let me explain. You know what a secret is, right? You bend over somebody, and everybody else feels left out, right? You know what the secret is. Now, what is a secret according to the Old Testament? How does the Old Testament define it? It defines it this way. A secret is something that is hidden, but is now revealed. 
It's something that was once hidden, but now it's come to light. It's now revealed. Now you understand what it is. So what is the secret of the kingdom of God that he's referring to back in the Old Testament? Well, stop and think about it. What was secret in the Old Testament? God had made it very, very clear that he was going to save his people by sending a savior, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, he says that. He promises that. All the prophets are promising, hey, the one is going to come. Isaiah keeps saying, explaining what he's ultimately going to be like. Guess what the secret was? Nobody knew exactly who he was. So until finally God interjects into time, and Paul calls it this, says it this way, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Jesus comes. He's sent. And all of a sudden, every, the secret is no longer hidden. It's now been revealed. But here's the catch. Work with me here. This is good stuff. Work with me. Here's the problem. He's been revealed, but yet he's veiled. His true identity is veiled. In other words, I know we think, all of us, that more people, if Jesus was just living during our day, everybody would just jump on the bandwagon, right? Because, but the Bible teaches us there was nothing that you could see from him on the outside looking at him that would convince you that he was the Messiah. He didn't have those piercing blue eyes and long blowing blonde hair, right? You know, you know, we're not talking about European Jesus here where you'd sit there and go, oh, he's got to be the Messiah. Check him out. No, the Old Testament says that there was nothing about him that was really all that great, nothing really to be all impressed about with his exterior, and even his teachings. Look, his teachings were amazing. The scribes said nobody teaches like the way that Jesus does, but at the same exact time, there were many who heard it but weren't convinced that he was ultimately the Messiah. So he's revealed, but yet his knowledge is still, who he is is still veiled. What is the difference then between those who see him for who he is? and hear the significance of what he's saying, and those who hear the same thing and see the same thing, but yet they don't believe, what is the difference? What makes the difference whether you're in or out? Let me tell you this. Has nothing to do with your human intelligence, has nothing to do with your own human merit, has simply to do with one thing, and that's faith. Those that would look upon Jesus and listen to Jesus with a heart and with ears of faith Guess what? They got it. Those that approached Jesus and heard his teachings and everything else and, and just try to kind of manipulate it and think about it logically and try to work it out, they completely and utterly missed it. And so that's what Jesus says. He says, he says it was, he goes, it's by faith that they understand that secret of the kingdom of God. But here's one thing that we have to mention. The other word is given. In other words, this isn't something for you and I be popped up, pumped up about. If you and I sit there and go, yeah, I've repented and I believe in Jesus. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm a part of his kingdom. Man, look how great I am. Man, my neighbor is kind of stupid. I mean, I've shared the gospel with him every way I possibly can, and he just doesn't get it. In other words, I'm smart or I'm deserving of it. He says, no. He says, here's the deal. If you get it, it's because you were given it. And this is exactly what Paul says when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Listen, exactly what Jesus is saying. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a what, church? It is a gift from God. Not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. If we boast, we boast in Christ, in Christ crucified. It's a gift that God has ultimately given us, right? And so then he goes to the second section here. Not, he talks about the insiders, then he goes to the outsiders. He's telling why he teaches in parables. He says, but for those outside, everything is in parables. 
Uh, then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6 and verse, verses 6 through 10. He says, So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So here's the deal. Those that hear Jesus and see Jesus through faith understand the significance of it. Those who come and hear Jesus, hear his words, and see who Jesus is by their own intellect, apart from faith, they're outsiders, they don't get it. At best, Jesus' teaching is entertaining, and at worst, it's foolishness. Again, it's exactly what Paul preached in 1 Corinthians 1.8. Listen to this. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Isn't that right? If you ask people, hey, we're going to go to the house of God to learn the word of God, dude, why waste your time, they're thinking. That's ridiculous. I'd rather spend my time on the ocean or on the, the RV or whatever it is. It's foolishness. But notice what the word of God says in verse 1-8. The ha- last part says, but to the, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Don't you guys get that even each and every Sunday? Right? You're sitting there, and I know you guys, you go to bed early on Sunday night. You don't watch the whole lot of football on Saturday because you want to come in prepared for the word of God, right? So you come in, you come early. You kind of map out your place. You sit down. You get ready for God. I'm being facetious. But you are. There is in your heart this hunger for the word of God. Are you with me? Man, you just sit in there and you're like, come on, dude, bring it. For some of you, some of you are like pulling it out of me. You got that? And, it, and it's very easy to preach. People are like, yeah, come on, brother. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're writing down, all right? And some of you are shoving it down my throat, okay? Going, no mas, no mas, all right? That's Spanish. You know that, Zach? Okay, just wanted to know, all right, just wanted to know, all right? And so, so what happens is, with this whole thing, is, 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 is we see that, and we see it on a daily basis. Maybe you've invited a friend to church. Have you ever had something like this? You know they're lost, as lost as a dog in high weeds, and you're sitting there, and the message comes, and it's not because of the person preaching, but it's because of the power of the word and the spirit that move, and you sit there, and you get in the car, you shut the door, and you go, wow. And the person that came with you, they're smacking gum and eating Cheetos, and they're like, what? And you're like, wow, what? Right? And they don't get it. I mean, they listened to the same exact message you did. They even looked, kind of looked, like they were intent on what was being said. What's the difference? One listens in faith, and one listens apart from faith. It says, those that listen in faith see it and are stirred and transformed by the power of the word of God. But those who sit back and apart from faith just sit there. They're just kind of like, What? What? I, I, I don't get it. I don't understand what in the world he's talking about. And he says that is the primary purpose of why he does this. Now, let me hit one thing before we move on. At the end of verse 12, he says, lest they should turn and be forgiven. It's a hard passage, but let me explain this. I don't believe that Jesus is saying that those who are on the outside who don't believe are stuck on the outside and that Jesus is trying to trick them and, and keep them in darkness. I don't believe that. I believe what it's saying is simply this, is they are in the darkness because they refuse to believe. And they will remain in the darkness as long as they continue in their unbelief. But if they believe, they come in, they usher it in, they get it. So that's why he uses these parables. So the purpose, according to Jesus, of why he used parables is he used them to clarify the truth to those on the inside, but to confuse those who are on the outside. Now here's the second thing, the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Now, that might seem kind of elementary to some of you. And, and here's the bottom line is, I bet you if I had a test saying, what is the kingdom of God, we'd probably come up with all kinds of answers. But I think to understand the parables of the kingdom of God, we better get a firm grasp of what the kingdom of God is, don't you think? 
And here's what's crazy about it. There are some of you that are got to disagree with me. Because of your eschatology and because of some of your theology, you may sit back and go, man, this isn't my view of what the kingdom of God is. But it's my job as your pastor to be faithful to the text and give you the clearest understanding of what the Bible teaches concerning the kingdom of God. You know, it's amazing how few sermons you hear on the kingdom of God. I wonder how many you've heard. I haven't preached very many, but yet the term kingdom of God is used over 140 times in the scriptures. Jesus went around constantly preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God. Paul constantly was preaching about the coming of the kingdom of God, entering into the kingdom of God. They're constantly preaching about it. But it's interesting that so many believers just don't quite understand what it is. So let me, let me give you two things that I think that will help clear it up for you, at least from my perspective of what the kingdom of God is all about. The first thing we need to understand is the kingdom's location. The kingdom's location. Now, where is the kingdom of God? The only reason I ask that is because when we think of kingdoms, I think of knights and I think of jousting and I think of you know, big turkey legs, but I also think of, of borders, right? Borders and, and, and protecting those borders and expanding those borders. Y'all with me on this? You've seen enough of those things? And you know, to protect the land, protect the property. But when we come to the kingdom of God, we need not to think in terms of geography. It's not geographical so much as it is, as it is relational, okay? So you can't go out and go, okay, so where's the kingdom of God? I'm trying to, where, where do we plot it on the graphs? No, it's not geographical, it's relational. Where you find the kingdom of God dwelling is you find it in the hearts and lives of God's people. That's where the kingdom of God is located. That's where we find it. In other words, everyone and anyone who bows into full submission and complete submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, I am no longer God. You are God, and I will follow you and submit to you. They are a part of the kingdom of God. Church, can I say this? This is why we don't preach easy believism. This is why we don't sit there and go, hey, do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you believe the other thing? Yes, I do. Pat you on the back, dunky, and say that you're saved. And say, don't let anybody ever convince you otherwise. You believe the right things, you're saved. That's sent more people to hell than anything, I can, than anything I've ever seen to assure somebody, oh, you ascribe to a certain mental ascent that Jesus is Savior. Paul or James says even the devils believe. Even the devils believe. What is he talking about? He says this, we believe in lordship salvation. That's what we believe. Are you a believer? Yes. Why? Because I professed and I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I signed a card. I got baptized and I joined a church. That's how. That's not a good answer. That might be a part of your testimony, but it's not a good answer. What's a good answer? I realized that I was in rebellion against the mighty king. And I do not want to rebel against him anymore. It's wrong. I hate my sin. And now I submit myself fully and completely to the king, Jesus Christ. That is the answer that we're looking for. Do you got that? Now, don't cheat. Don't just record that and say it to try to pass the test, all right? But that's what we're looking for. You guys got it? And so those who are within the kingdom are those who have knelt and bowed. Those who are outside of the kingdom are, are, are what? Are those who continue to live in the kingdom of darkness apart from salvation. But where is it? The kingdom of God rests in every heart of every believer. Second thing is the kingdom's occurrence. When does this whole kingdom happen? Well, there's two things. Number one, there's the consummation of the kingdom. And when we talk about that, we talk eschatologically. That's just a big term that says in the future. Okay? Well, then just say in the future. All right, in the future, all right, there's going to be a time, the Bible says, that the kingdom of God is going to be revealed and fully realized. Okay? 
passages like Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 speak about this. All you have to do is go back and read it. It talks about a new heaven, talks about a new earth, talks about a new Jerusalem where God's people come and they begin to worship God in spirit and in truth. The Bible describes it somewhat like this. He says, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Sounds like the kind of place I would like to go, right? No bursitis, gingivitis, none of these kind of things that we struggle with every day, no cancer. Can you imagine living pain-free? My neck would love that. No pain. Sounds like a great place. But you know what makes heaven heaven is Jesus That's what makes it. Hey, man, you can keep. Look, hey, gold streets, pearly gates, mansion, all great. Y'all fired up about that? You think you're going to fish in the crystal sea? Do whatever you want. But what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there, right? So I'm fired up. You're fired up. Let's go see Jesus. Well, Jesus, that didn't fire me up. Get saved, my friend, all right? Because it will do it. You'll want to see him, okay? So here we are. And so this is what it describes. And the Bible tells us that it's going to be much like the garden. Remember the garden? It's what God's purpose was for mankind, for him to provide for them, to take care of them, for them to have fellowship one with another with their God, and for them to be completely in submission with God. It was lost when man and woman rebelled against God. Everything was fallen. Jesus is turning it upside down again. Everything that's upside down, he's going to turn it right side up. In fact, it's actually going to be better than the garden. Do you know why? Because there's absolutely no possibility of sin. No more struggle of sin. No more sinful thoughts. No more fighting and trying to put the flesh to death. We'll be glorified in heaven with Christ and never again will we have to feel shame or guilt. We sit there and we become all that God had intended for us to be. And who receives the glory and the honor and the praise? Him who gave it to us. It's a wonderful thing and that's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what it's going to be like one day. But it's not like that fully. Not yet. There was a beginning of the kingdom of God coming on earth. And, and what we find is we find that at the inauguration. There's not, only a, uh, there's not only the consummation, but there's the inauguration, the beginning of the kingdom of God. When did that happen? It happened when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus came on the scene, the kingdom began right then, right there. Scholars kind of talk it like this. It's already, but not yet. The kingdom of God was demonstrated that it had already come. And how did it already come? That was the reason why Jesus is performing all the miracles. He's not performing all the miracles so that you can, you and I can name it, claim it. In the word faith movement of sitting back going, if I just have enough faith, God will give it to me. He comes on the scene demonstrating that he's undoing all the mars of sin. He's letting us know that the new kingdom has come and he has authority over sickness and death and the demons So that's why he's coming and he's working all this out and he's doing all these things so that they would know, guess what? The kingdom of God has come. It's already, but it's not in its fullness. It's already, but not yet. Do you see that? The consummation, the beginning of it. We're living within that time in a sinful time, but also during the kingdom of God that dwells within us. And one day it's going to be consummated. It's going to be complete. And everything else is going to be washed away. And every tongue confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord. You got that? That's how it works. Now, here's where the problem is. 
The problem is this was not the mindset of both the Jews and the Romans during that time. The Jews struggled with this because when they read the Old Testament, they believed that there were going to be two very concrete times, that there, were going to, there was going to be a hard break between the time in which they live and the time to come. So they thought there was going to be a sin and there was going to be disaster and there was going to be uh, affliction. And then all of a sudden, the king is going to show up and when he shows up, he's going to put away all of his enemies and he's going to make everything right and he's going to rule supreme. That's going to be the kingdom of God. But they missed it. And that's what Jesus is trying to explain to them. And what Jesus is saying is, hey guys, it, there's not a hard break. It overlaps. It overlaps. And the kingdom of God is at hand, but yet it will not be fully realized until another time way in the future, an eschatological event at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Y'all with me? Okay, kinda. All right, get the tape. All right, all right. This is good stuff, all right? So keep navigating through this. Now, now what happens is the, the, the Jews don't get it, but the Romans don't get it. Remember, he originally wrote to Romans. And so they're sitting there going, man, I don't know about all the old prophecy because they don't know anything about it. But what they do know is Rome. And what they do know is that Rome, and this is why they were confused at this point, this is why he has to give those parables, is because they understand that when Rome takes over, they don't do it easily. They don't kind of slide in the kingdom. And say, okay, you guys, you be in charge a little bit. We'll be in charge a little bit. You know, it's no mixture of kingdoms. When they come in, they sit there and say, you submit or we'll kill you. If you don't submit, we kill you. If you submit, you become a part of us. We absorb you into what? Into the kingdom of Rome, into the Roman Empire. And so that's the way that ultimately works. So when they're sitting here and Jesus says the kingdom has already come, but they're seeing people in blatant rebellion and God's not wiping them out, they're sitting there scratching their head go, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So Jesus then, at that point, gives all the rest of the parables. Does that make sense? So what we do is let me introduce, just for a second, this parable. Just for a few moments that we have remaining. Here it is. I'll do it as quickly as we can. In verse 4, he says in the beginning, in verse 3, now this is going to be the key word. The key word is listen. Listen. Now, when he says and he gives the command to listen, he's not saying, he's not speaking of the ear's mechanical ability to capture sound. Okay? Hey, you, you hear that? You hear that thing? You hear that thing buzzing? No, that's not what he's talking about. When he says to hear, he means to heed. And to heed means for you to embrace, to accept, to believe, and to act on the truth that you're hearing. That's what the difference is between those who are in and those who are out. The people who are on the outside hear all the messages of Jesus. They hear all the same thing. They hear the gospel They've heard the kingdom of God is at hand, but you know what they're doing? They're letting it pass in one ear and out the other. But those who truly believe, what do they do? They accept it by faith. And that's his point. He says, listen, listen to it with faith to receive it. And then Jesus goes on, and let's read it very quickly. He says, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell upon the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded, so it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, listen, I know some people, Baptists really get a bad uh, name and people look down at them because we love to alliterate our sermons. Three points, all alliterated, all starting with the same letter, right? You ever hear a Baptist preacher like that? They love that. 
Where do we get that? Jesus, right? He's got three points to his message, and here they are, the sower, the seed, and the soil. Don't blame me. We just want to be like Jesus, okay? So let me tell you this very quickly. He says, listen, let me just introduce these things, but we're going to unpack them more next week. Who is the sower? It's Jesus. Jesus comes to sow. He's the farmer. He's the planter. That's what he's been doing all this time. Every time he goes and preaches, he's farming. He's sowing seed. Every time he preaches the gospel, that's what he's ultimately doing. He's out and about. Now, notice something. When he sows, do you see how he's sowing? He's not sowing as the Mishnah instructed. The Mishnah instructed the Jews, be very careful with the seed and where you place it. Take it, be very meticulous, place and know exactly where you planted the seeds. Don't get crazy on it. Be conservative in where you're planting that seed. When Jesus comes along and in the parable, how does he sow seed? I mean, he's just flying, he's frying it everywhere, right? Hey, there's, there, there's a hard path. There's some stony soil, right? Hey, man, there's some good soil. Hey, that's good over there. We'll throw it over there. Jesus is just sowing like crazy. Why is he doing that? Because he understands the law of harvesting. Why? Because he's the Lord of the harvest. You say, what does that mean? Read the Old Testament. It says, if you sow sparingly, you will likewise sow, you will also reap sparingly. But if you sow bountifully, you will likewise reap bountifully. You know what he says? I'm going to sow it everywhere. I'm going to sow it everywhere because the harvest of souls that I want to come in are not a few. But I want a massive group of believers to give God the glory that he ultimately deserves. So I'm not going to be sparingly just kind of throwing a little seeds down. I'm going to, why, I'm going to, I'm going to throw it everywhere, right? Now, he is the sower. What about the seed? Well, the seed is the word of God. He explains that later in the text. The seed is more specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ. What has he been teaching? Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is he doing? He's spreading the gospel to everyone, everywhere he goes, right? And so the seed is a powerful picture of the gospel because a seed contains within it an almost infinite potential for life. You ever thought about that, the seed? What are you going to do? I'm going to put a massive fruit tree in my backyard. You are? Well, what's that in your hand? It's the beginning of that tree, right? And you have the seed, and, you know, it's spit out, and it's thrown by you, and you take that little bit of seed. But inside that seed is almost an infinite uh, ability to bear life. And that tree is going to grow up, and it's going to bear fruit, and then more seeds, and then more trees, and then more seeds, and more fruit, and it's going to keep growing, right? And so the seed is the word of God. That's why Paul sits there, and he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation is life for everyone who what? Believes. By faith, believes the gospel. You see how that all connects together? So what is the soil? Very quickly, y'all are doing great, much better than the first class. Don't tell them that, all right? So four soils that he talks about, and we're going to unpack all this stuff next week. But let me just say this. Uh, there, is, there is the hard-packed soil, there is the, uh, there is the uh, stony soil, the shallow soil, there's the thorny soil, then there's the good soil. And what these all represent is they all represent the condition of man's heart. What ultimately determines whether the power of that gospel bears fruit and brings about life? It depends on where that seed is planted. If it's planted on three-fourths of the soil, guess what? Nothing's going to grow. It may grow, but it's not going to ultimately bear fruit, which is consistent with true, with, with true salvation. He says, but only one of them was planted and bore 
good fruit. I mean, we're going to unpack all that next week. Let me finish. Now, what we've done, I believe the authors tried to do two things. I believe his purpose was, number one, is to clarify things. And I felt like we did that. Clarify what a parable is. Clarify what the kingdom of God is. Now, what my hope is to do is also to leave you with some encouragement. Let me do that just very quickly. Let me encourage you with two things. Number one, may we, each and every one, and as a church, may we so bountifully. We're far more like people that have a copy of the Mishnah aside where we sit back and go, man, I'm really, really, really gearing myself up to plant the seed of the gospel in my family member's life. And I just got to get geared up. Well, how long has it taken? It's taken me 10 years. It's taken me 10 years, man. I've got this seed. I've got this one seed, and I've got to make it good. And I've got to make sure that if they hear the gospel and share the gospel, and if I share the gospel, then they're going to get an opportunity of whether they're ultimately going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's not what Jesus does. And there are some people's theology that messes them up. Even good theology can steer you in the wrong direction. Some people will sit there and they'll go, yes, but listen, that good seed is not going to do anything if it's on the wrong soil. I get that. Don't you think Jesus got that? Jesus created their heart. He knew their heart. He knew who would reject them. He knew their hearts. We read that in chapter 2. He knew what they were thinking inside of their heart. But did he sit there and, 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 and so sparingly? No, bountifully. Why do we say, why, why should we so bountifully? And this is what a lot of people say. I don't want to see people go to hell. There's a humanistic part of that that we try to work at, but it's not our ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose, why we spread the gospel and share the gospel every turn and every opportunity that we get and we just fling it everywhere is because number one, We don't know the condition of anybody's heart. They may look rough on the outside. They may look hardened on the outside. They may be swearing and killing and coveting and doing all these other types of things. But you don't know what the heart looks like until you plant that seed and see what God does inside of them. But here's the ultimate reason why we sow. It's not to just get lost people out of hell and to make sure that they don't burn for all eternity. That's that certainly works in there some way. But let me tell you what the ultimate purpose is. Same reason that Jesus did. Because God is worth every bit of every bit of praise and worship and glory of every human being who has ever served, who has ever lived. He is worthy of all the glory and the honor and the praise. That's why we sow it the way that we do. And I can preach it, and I can say it, and Jimmy could preach it from last week, time and time again. But until you just sit there, until I just sit there and say, I'm just going to be a sower. I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to be a sower. I'm just going to throw the word out there, man. Now, now notice something. There's something that could be really, really discouraging. Three-fourths of the work is wasted, right? I mean, you know, throw it out there. Nothing's going to ultimately happen. Three-fourths. And I feel like that. I mean, I know other folks in our staff, they feel that way. You probably do too. You're like, man, I've been sharing this gospel for a while now. I'm not seeing anything. What in the world's going on? And so I think he shares his parable to encourage those believers in this. And here's the encouraging part. He sits there and he says, And some other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me tell you something. Not everybody's going to come to faith in Jesus Christ by hearing the gospel. 
but there's good soil out there. And the Bible says that there's just not going to be a few folks that come to faith in Jesus. When we look around and even in our church, we're like, man, when do we stir the baptism? When, 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 the, when, when we get to baptize again? And the large part is when we begin to share even more. But here's the bottom line with this, is that there are some out there who will be saved. We've got to get the word of God to them. And it will be, even if it looks meager right now, the encouragement is it won't be meager then. I want you to open up in closing. I want you to open up to the book of Revelation, chapter 7, because I'm going to have you read something with me. I know that's very awkward. And we're going to read slow because I'm a slow reader, so don't get nervous, all right? And if you have the ESV, I want you to read along with me out of your Bibles. If not, we're going to have it right up here on the screens. We're going to read this together. And here's how it all looks right here. And here's the encouragement to you. As you share the faith, but you see most of it falling on bad soils, here's what it's going to look like one day. Would you stand to your feet? Revelation chapter 7. And here's what I want you to do. Church, look at me just for a second. Will you read this as though you mean it? Will you read it as though it is the truth of God and imagine how it will be one day when we stand together and this is a reality? Follow along with me. Let's read together. Revelation chapter, um, Revelation chapter 9. After this, I looked, and behold, read with me, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen.